So now for a brief introduction of Dr. Boris Heifetz. Um, he has had a lifelong interest in neuroscience, non-ordinary states of consciousness, and neuroplasticity. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine, and by courtesy in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine, where he maintains a clinical anesthesiology practice, directs clinical trials, and runs a basic neuroscience lab. He received his undergraduate degree in neuroscience from Yale University, MD-PhD degree from, the, from Albert Einstein's College of Medicine, and completed anesthesiology residency and a neuroanesthesiology fellowship at Stanford Hospital. Now for a brief introduction of Dr. Laura Hack, who is an instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Deputy Director and Esketamine Lead in the Precision Neuromodulation Clinic at the Palo Alto VA, and Director of Novel and Precision Therapeutics within the Center for Precision Mental Health and Wellness. As a practicing psychiatrist, Dr. Hack has a passion for better understanding subtypes of depression, depressive disorders using data from multi, multiple modalities and targeting these sub, subtypes with novel therapies. Facilitated by the Center, Dr. Hack has had the opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Heifetz over the past three and a half years on projects spanning neural mechanisms of ketamine and MDMA and healthy subjects to the effects of a single dose of interoperative ketamine on depressed patients to case reports of anesthesia-induced dreams correlating with the resolution of PTSD symptoms. So uh, Boris, perhaps you, to get started, you can tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've been involved with. Sure. Uh, thanks, Jacob, and thanks, uh, Laura, for coming on. This is, I believe, the inaugural uh, Precision uh, Mental Health Center fireside chat. I'm feeling very cozy right now, and it is December. So uh, this all seems very appropriate. Um, it's uh, again, Laura. I'm, I'm particularly happy to be be on with you. We uh, our, our collaborations have only grown over the last couple of years. We're both junior faculty uh, with a, a couple of years difference, but um, we're you know I think that there's since the time that you've come on, and certainly over the time I've been at Stanford, there's been a tremendous growth in the amount of work that's being done on drugs that really you couldn't base a career around uh, even you know, five years ago, things like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin. Ketamine actually, I think has been already, uh, we, we're, we're, we've jumped the shark on ketamine, um, but that, that's, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of, of work now that uh, is ongoing at Stanford that's getting into some of the most interesting aspects of, of how ketamine works. So um, I don't know, Laura, what's your, uh, how, how have you, uh, how have you found the, the last few years uh, at Stanford? Yeah, I mean, it's been so exciting um, and it's been really great working with you. You um, are doing just such innovative work in this area um, and these uh, rapidly acting psychedelics have such a amazing potential to, to help people. Um, and there's just this huge unmet need. So I think it's, you know, the work that we're doing together is just so important. Well, I, ha I have a few slides to that effect. And as you can, you know, uh, I think as, as you will continue to see, and certainly our audience, I think will hopefully will appreciate these, this is not possible. Uh, this is not a one, a one person endeavor, but by, by any means, um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I, you know, like to moonlight, I guess, uh, I, but anyway, that um, I, you know, it really, it takes expertise 
uh, from anesthesia, sedation, um, you know, rapid alterations in physiology, pharmacology, uh, and you know, right alongside with uh, you know all of the diagnostic therapeutic tools that you developed in in psychiatry that I am learning about, but don't know much about um, enough about yet. And that's really what we're here to find out. So let, let me, I'll show you a couple of slides just to give you a broad overview of uh, the work that's been going on in, in my group. And again, this, you'll see a lot of this plays into uh, things that um, you're doing in the Precision Mental Health Center. And in some of these projects are well, and uh, yeah, so this, again, th this is uh, a presentation that I've, I've given before, and it's going to be greatly abridged, but I really, I want to give you a flavor for how um, some of, so, some of these, these new drug therapies, these new ideas about therapy really uh, play out mechanistically, uh, and, you know, where, where, we're, where the future is going to take us. So, the first thing I think to, you know, the, the, the groundwork is really laid uh, by patient encounters. And that I think was where a lot of the starts. And this is an, an actual email I got from a patient unsolicited, uh, not even at Stanford, actually. <laughs> um, she, she read about some of the work we were doing and she wanted to relate this experience. Um, she, chronic pain patient, multiple orthopedic surgeries in her ankle, uh, and she's telling me about just the last surgery she had. It was the morning after January outpatient surgery. Something happened to this day I find difficult to explain. She felt great. I initially attributed my feelings of increased energy to finally having relief from getting the hardware out. And that, of course, is the hardware in her ankle. And while she's still awakening with severe night pain, the emotional anguish of those long nights was gone. When this almost euphoric feeling continued for more than a week, she began trying to assess what was happening and why. Now, I wouldn't be sharing this unless we didn't have at least some inkling. The only difference between this surgery and the five preceding ones was she got ketamine. Um, how that relates to her, her post-operative recovery, I think that's the most interesting uh, question that we had to answer. Um, and, you know, the ketamine is one of a number of therapeutics that have gotten a lot of attention uh, lately. Ketamine's actually been around in anesthesia since the 1970s. I'm uh, appalled to say that we did not notice in anesthesia the first antidepressant uh, use of the drug. But um, nonetheless, uh, there are a number of developments in the 90s in neuroscience and psychiatry led them to test ketamine for depression. And this is one of the early studies, a randomized placebo-controlled trial on ketamine, and you can see here the depression scores on the y-axis, and you can see the resolution of symptoms very quickly in the group that received ketamine and not in the placebo group. This is, uh, you know, the, 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 these studies have been going on for the last uh, 15 years now, larger and larger trials, um, and it's, there's, there, are other, there are other therapies that seem to have at least some things in common. Um, this is psilocybin, uh, again, effects on depression. This is um, specifically, the, this trial is from NYU uh, study, but there is a, a number of groups have reported similar effects. And now a large phase 2B trial from Compass has shown something very similar that on standardized uh, scales of depression, a single dose of psilocybin can induce these monster effects. Now, 
there is a lot of um, question, you know, about how will this will this kind of effect? Will we keep seeing it? How much is due to the psych of uh, the, the hype of psychedelics? How do we design appropriately controlled trials? These are all incredibly important questions that I'm not even going to touch on. Um, but again, the phenomenon is there. This is a bigger signal, I think, than anyone's seen in neuropsychiatric disorders for decades. So that's really attention grabbing. And of course, MDMA um, is another example of this, where one or two doses uh, given in the context of therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder is, seems to be remarkably effective and durable. This is uh, just showing two-month outcomes in a, 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 a essentially open-label trial, uh, which all of these trials essentially are because it's very difficult to blind uh, patients to the effects of MDMA. Um, but again, the thing that really binds these therapeutics together is the rapidity of onset. In some cases, four hours, but you know, about a day, patients are already feeling something very different. Um, the effects outlast blood levels of, of the drug. That's really not something that we're used to. That's not the SSRI model. Um, so again, and well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that these molecules that have totally dissimilar pharmacology share these these properties. And what's more, the future of psychiatry, which is, I think, encapsulated in this slide, uh, this is, I think, one of the most exciting directions, uh, at least uh, alongside, you know, things like TMS uh, and, and other novel therapeutics, it, it increasingly looks like monitored care, closely monitored care with therapy and direct supervision during intense pharmacological and physiological manipulations. Now, if I were giving this to an audience at the American Society of Anesthesia, everybody would immediately recognize their own job description of that. That's really you know, very close to what uh, we do in the ORs where we are really controlling uh, extremes of physiology through pharmacology in order to get patients through a very powerful experience, which is, I guess, one way to refer to surgery. There are other, other ways you can talk about it. Um, so anyway, so that, that's, that's really the, that's, that's the rationale for where I think that these two fields intersect. And um, I'm not, I'm going to try and condense a, a lot of work in a, in a few slides, but really the, why are we so interested in drug mechanism? And it, it comes down to the fact that while there are amazing signals out there for efficacy, there's actually quite a bit of unknown, <laughs> unknown uh, aspects to these therapies and risk, frankly. Uh, MDMA, you know, has a lot of uh, a lot of potential, but it also there is an enormous um, there there's an, an enormous opportunity for misuse and abuse uh, for MDMA for ketamine. We don't know who uh, psilocybin is really most appropriate for. And you know, this is basically where our lab's work comes in, is we try and really take this back and forth from animal modeling to testing mechanism in humans and everything in between. And I keep promising I'm gonna tell you about the work we're actually doing. So now, now we're, gonna, we're gonna get a little bit closer. So you know, the, you folks uh, watching may or may not be so familiar with MDMA, but um, one of the most uh, poignant quotes that, that, that I recall reading, this is the, the father of, uh, of the, the, the MDMA renaissance, Sasha Shulgin, uh, wrote this book called Phenethylamines I've Known and Loved uh, with his wife, Anne. 
Um, and one of his uh, recollections was about taking MDMA was that it opened up a person to other people and inner thoughts. And he decided it might be well suited for psychotherapy. And this was in the 70s uh, when he actually had these experiences. And it really, it took off. Um, it, you know, in the 70s, it uh, spread in the Bay Area um, in, into the 80s. And then people found out it was a lot of fun to, to do, you know, respective of therapy. And then the DA got involved put it on schedule one, and then a very, very long drought um, until, again, first phase three trial initiated in 2017 and reported out this year in the New York Times. That's how exciting <laughs> these kinds of results are. Um, this is from uh, Jenny Mitchell, uh, UCSF. Um, and again, like this is uh, PTSD after the, the wars of the last 20 years is a major issue, obviously, the lockdowns and all the other contemporary, um, you know, contemporary issues uh, also obviously contribute to uh, rising diagnoses of post-traumatic stress. But again, this is a remarkable result looking at the effects of MDMA-assisted therapy, just a couple doses um, over you know, months. And, um, you know, the question that remains, this is, a, uh, you know, a, a remarkable effect that early studies seems to suggest go for years uh, after just a couple treatments. And how do we, how does it work? And, you know, can we refine it? Because again, it has abuse potential and chronic use is associated with a whole host of things that you don't want. And if you think for a minute about what it takes to pull a drug from the market, like Cox inhibitors or uh, any any number of uh, you know antidepressants or lorcasserin, which has been used for uh, uh, obesity and uh, appetite suppression, there really isn't a whole lot of tolerance for um, at least in, in the U.S. for for drugs that have major side effects. And that's I think where we uh, the, the work that we're doing uh, really comes in is. If we can understand how these drugs work and separate out those good effects, let's say, from the abuse potential, then uh, we have a way forward to designing precision therapy. Now, that's precision therapy. We haven't even talked about precision diagnostics, and I'm going to turn, turn back to Laura for that in a minute. Um, I, I want to just show you, again, like what, how, do we, how do we get a mechanism? We do it through mice. We, we get mice to perform these simple behavioral tasks where they either hang out with their buddy or they hang out with an empty cup. And uh, we look at their sociability over time and we find that MDMA does something very similar to what it does in humans. Again, I'm kind of skipping over a lot of detail. And once we get these kinds of models, we can really do detailed work on what are the neural elements that control these things. And one of the more exciting things that we're doing is now really looking across the entire brain for what is it that may mediate that social, um, that social effect of MDMA. And then this, again, this lines up beautifully with the work that Laura is doing um, in the Precision Mental Health Lab, looking at MDMA in humans, where they're mapping brain-wide effects in humans on MDMA. Um, and you know, what's in common is that none of these things really assume a specific receptor. We're not screening receptors to understand the mechanism anymore. We're not even assuming that it's all happening in one brain area. All we're assuming is that activity, whether in a human or uh, a mouse, is somehow related to mechanism and behavior. And so, you know, we're in a mouse at least, we're able to 
again, without, without going into too much detail, we're taking advantage of some very, uh, very exciting developments in neuroscience to be able to map uh, entire brain's activity uh, at cellular resolution and then compare different states like mice on MDMA versus mice on methamphetamine, um, social context, non-social context. Um, and then we can identify and control those neural elements. And that's something you can't do in humans. Um, and again, so we find some brain areas that really seem to be selectively involved in that social effect and we're able to map them out. And again, I think this is what, well, I think we can pause here for a minute. Um, this is really where I think, Laura, um, your, your, your work is, is, is going is, you know, we have the signal in a mouse, what are we gonna do with it when we get to a human? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that um, it's gonna, you know, one thing just to help us understand um, where these drugs are, are acting in the brain um, and um, potentially, as you say, um, use that information to kind of isolate the therapeutic effects and separate those. Um, from the abuse effects. Um, and so, yeah, go ahead. So just, I'm thinking, you know, that some, one of the things that has been very uh, hard to study, we're still, you know, we're at the very earliest stages of understanding how MDMA, first of all, whether it's effective at all. I think that is a really important thing to say up front is there is exactly one phase three trial that's appropriately powered. Um, that this, you know, if this were a new drug for blood pressure, uh, I think, you know, that's really the bar that we should be thinking of. It's worth mentioning that there's so few effective therapies for PTSD that, you know, we're, um, that, that's, that's what breakthrough status, <laughs> I think, is, is, is for and why this is getting so much attention. But there's still this idea that, um, you know, we kind of treat everybody it's hard to differentiate, you know, even in something as magical, <laughs> using that, you know, in air quotes, as, as MDMA, it doesn't work for everybody. It's actually not a cure-all. Uh, and it may be just as informative to understand, you know, are there people that it might work better for it? Are there, you know, what can brain imaging tell us about that? And how do we, how do we, how do we put that back into a mouse to understand individual differences? I think th those are um, important questions. And how many, how many patients are now, have now gone through the MBMA protocol? I think we're still at number one. That's right. Yes. So it's probably too early to make any broad, uh, conclusions, but, um, I don't know. Do you, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, what you heard from, from this patient in the, in the, in the scanner? Yeah, so I mean, she definitely had really a profound experience of um, euphoria, and um, she she doesn't really have um, a history of trauma or any um, current psychiatric diagnoses. Um, that's part of the requirements for our study that they not um, that you know that they're healthy volunteers, but nevertheless, um, she still said that you know, she ended up thinking through some things that were going on in her life and um, kind of felt like she came to 
some resolution for, for some of them. And I mean, of course, that seems to be what's going on as well in PTSD and other disorders that, that MBMA is being investigated in. Um, of course, with PTSD, it's, you know, more focusing on that specific trauma and trying to reprocess it and um, kind of have a new relationship to, to it. Um, and, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't have to be specific to that, that that's certainly been the focus. Um, I'm, I'm desperate to know where, you know, what, again, this is all happening in an MRI during functional imaging that you've essentially caught on camera some, someone having an emotional resolution. Uh, again, it's not, it is not the same as PTSD, and that's an important point to make. But what were, you know, were, do mice have PTSD? I have no idea. I'm not that hopeful, actually. <laughs> but but the, I think the important, you know, why are we, what are we using mice for, and why are we doing these side-by-side animal human experiments is that what you caught on camera, someone having resolution of emotional trauma. And, you know, we, the, we have these crude ways of measuring that even in humans, um, you know, where we kind of think that that relates to, you know, your ability to relate to other people. And that's kind of, we're modeling that kind of behavior in a mouse. But what you see on imaging, the, that, you know, that, that is something that now we can directly into our own studies where we have brain-wide activation maps of MDMA in a mouse in various contexts. And that's, that's exactly what we're looking for. It's something that's conserved across species, you know, and across time that's really basic is resilience and recovery uh, from, you know, from, from trauma. And that we think, I mean, that, that's the basic, you know, uh, kind of underlies all of this work is that these things are very much conserved across, uh, you know, across evolution. And if we can understand how those things happen um, in, in some detail, then maybe we can recreate them in a more targeted way. I'm really curious, you know, some patients are not going to have that experience. They're just going to have some euphoria uh, without, you know, without emotional resolution. So it's, to me, that's, that is really the value of being able to do this in the same institution and being able to you know, work together uh, so closely because that's, you know, we can, you don't want to adjust studies too much on the fly. But, you know, this is really like, it's, uh, there, there, there's a conversation going on at least across, across the species divide that I think is, is super important. Absolutely, yeah, just um, in, in talking about this this particular participant um she she's so great because she just really shares with us um everything that's going on and we just have a ton of questions for her um about you know her experience and you know one thing you know she she points out as as we know about this drug is that um you know it may it makes you want to connect with others. There's this pro-social element. Um, and, you know, we kind of, she kind of jokes, are you going to give us a hug or give me a hug? Um, and it just kind of makes me think about the um, environment that we're doing the study in, which is kind of a, a pretty sterile environment. It's actually, you know, we do these administrations in a conference room. Um, and, you know, kind of, it's not burning man it's not a burning, burning <laughs> <day>. <laughs> no 
not Burning Man now. And so we, um, it's, it's really in stark contrast to um, the philosophy of, of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy and, and the manual that, that Michael Midhoffer has written um, with having, you know, a comfortable space and a couch and, you know, heating pads and natural elements and, you know, soft things. And we, we really have none of that in there. Um, and we, we don't, we don't really have the resources for it um, in, in our, in our grants, but, you know, kind of makes me think, should, should we be including that as part of the experience? Um, because that, that's how, um, you know, it, it kind of makes sense to do that and just to make the people feel comfortable when they're in this altered state, or do we want to see their brain more in this very kind of sterile environment? I think that's there. There's a lot of there. There's some interesting written. Uh, Harriet DeWitt and Charlie Grove wrote something about studying. They both studied MDMA and uh, psychedelics like LSD, uh, psilocybin in both laboratory settings and also therapeutic settings. And there is very much, um, you know, especially in our work at the same time as we're trying to understand um, how these things work in disease models, right? Where again, how does ketamine work for depression? How does psilocybin work for chronic pain? Um, there's also this idea of like expanding human potential um, where, you know, precision mental health is actually an interesting concept because it doesn't have to apply to disease, actually. It can just apply to, you know, how do you, if you're going to categorize people, <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you, we can, we can talk about different types of blood pressure regulation. We can talk about different, um, you know, different immune responses, but we really don't have a language to discuss different types of personality in a quantitative way and how those things are going to interact with, with, you know, drug challenges, how that interacts with setting. And here we have, you know, what we're developing is a really powerful tool set to probe those kinds of mechanisms. So ideally, I see you're also a fan of, of, is it grapefruit? Do you have grapefruit? I have grapefruit. Um, I've got ras cranberry. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 anyway, anyway um, we'll probably edit that part out. Um, the, it's again, like the, the being able to, like, how do we move, how do we move this forward? And, you know, that what is so important about these uh, MDMA in particular, and to, you know, I think some extent psilocybin, maybe to a lesser extent ketamine is the set and setting part of it. How do these therapies work? If you look back at that, uh, I'm just going to share my screen again. I want to, I want to, I want to highlight something. Um, it, from the MDMA trial, actually, um, this, right, th this is the severity of patients, uh, you know, at the beginning, this is essentially non-functional patients with very, uh, pretty severe PTSD symptoms. And this is how they do with MDMA, which is great. This is how patients do with therapy. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this, like, how do we, you know, split apart the drug from the therapy uh, as if, and, uh, as you know, it, with the, the underlying assumption always seems to be let's how, how quickly can we get rid of that placebo effect therapy intervention? Um, and what this is so clearly showing us is that therapy, especially intensive therapy has a profound impact on, on recovery. 
And you know, how do you how do you study that? You need you know an appropriate an appropriate setting in order to um, to really deliver that. And that's so again, like the, the kind of mechanistic studies that you do now with normal you know with healthy controls are just as important as having side by side. Uh, trials where we, again, look at what is happening in a therapeutic context. And again, splitting apart what, you know, which parts of therapy are necessary, which parts are sufficient, how does it interact with the drug? Um, And this is kind of the whole idea of like brain state engineering. I'm going to actually show you an example of, again, like where, you know, how do we develop tools to even do that? Um, which is, I think what we're, <laughs> I'd like to, that, that, that's really what I'm, you know, most interested in. That part out too. Um, but uh, here, let me get back to, get, get back to my slides. And j- again, just a, a couple pictures. Sorry for the uh, seizure inducing um, movement, but you know, this gets it mechanism in humans. So, or, you know, you're, you're doing this work with MBMA in, um, in, you know, healthy patients in the scanner. So we do actually have some information about how other drugs in this broad category of psychedelic class compounds um, work for uh, actual psychiatric disorders. So we go, we go from testing mechanism in humans and going back to modeling drug effects uh, with mouse behavior. And again, that's exactly the model that we've been talking about with MDMA. Um, and in this case, it's uh, ketamine. So, you know, it's, a, again, as I mentioned, it's an anesthetic first, it was an anesthetic first. And um, after about 30 years of use, it became evident that it also has some pretty profound antidepressant effects. Um, and, you know, again, as you know, people glommed on to, this is an antidepressant. Oh, also, it's also a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, you can find clinics popping up all over the place. There's obvious abuse potential here. You know, some patients really just like the numbing and don't actually get any long-term benefit. Again, so th- there is there's a, a, a signal here um, that, that is giving us a, a rationale to understand a little bit better how does it work and can we really focus in on the, the, the part of this that's, that's helping with patients' mood, their resilience, um, and, and all those things that we think are important for recovery from depression. And this is just from Reddit. Uh, I mean, this, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm laughing, but it's, it's, it's serious. I mean, this is, you know, you think about how many people in the U.S. have, have diagnosed depression and how, if you just make ketamine available and just you know, with uh, and, and increase the exposure across the, the U.S. with, you know, 50 million potential patients, I think you're going to run into issues. So it's, you know, it, again, it, it's not, uh, it works pretty well, but that doesn't mean it's good enough that we should stop. Um, and so this was the kind of the, the, uh, the impetus for a study that we did with Alan Chatsberg and Nolan Williams, where we attacking I don't say attacking, testing, uh, or, or rethinking this idea of, of how it works. And for a little bit of background, um, you know, what one of the dominant ideas about ketamine is this idea that it binds to and blocks the NMDA receptor. That's a particular type of glutamate receptor. It is one of the most widespread receptors in the brain. Um, so it's as a mechanism, it's 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 interesting um, for a lot of reasons. 
but it's not clear whether it's correct. <laughs> um, and, you know, how do we, um, you know, how do we know whether it's correct? Well, we can test the mechanism in humans. Um, so how, you know, what's one way to test it? Well, you can test other drugs that work the same way. And, you know, maybe you would expect that if one NMDA receptor blocker works, others should. And, you know, as you, you look over, this is, you know, many, many years and unfortunately millions of dollars spent looking at other drugs working on the same mechanism. And it just has not panned out. And, you know, John Crystal at Yale has uh, actually has some it, very interesting and compelling arguments for why that might be. Um, but, you know, it's also raised the possibility that maybe NMDA receptors aren't enough um, to, to, to really explain the antidepressant effect. So we tested, uh, this is again, this is Alan's idea, which is this, this was the first, as far as I know, human behavioral pharmacology test, meaning you block an effect, a therapeutic effect of a drug with a very precise blocker to really as like a way to surgically dissect almost the mechanism of how drugs work. And so what we used for this was a drug called naltrexone, which uh, there's a similar drug called naloxone um, that is used for opioid overdose. So naltrexone is a high potency, uh, very selective opioid receptor blocker. It has nothing to do with NMDA receptors as far as we know. And so what you see here is this trial we did where, um, you know, looking at some of the, this is just patients who received ketamine. And this is again, the same effect that we've come to ex expect from other trials. And these same patients were crossed over in random orders to uh, a, a condition where before they got ketamine, they got a high dose of naltrexone. So all their opioid receptors were blocked and then they got ketamine. Now, if ketamine is just an NMDA receptor blocker, you'd expect that nothing really should, should happen, but that's not what we found. We found actually that there, it completely blocked the effect, and that was pretty surprising to me. So again, this is, is a, surprising, uh, a surprising finding that gives us some really important insight into how ketamine might work. So what do we do? We take it back to the mouse, and again, using a lot of the same tools I showed you for MDMA, we've developed a map of brain areas where naltrexone um, actually enhances ketamine-associated activity. And there is, there is a lot of detail here about, you know, whether you want to look at enhancements or, uh, you know, decreased activity. But the, my, the point that I want to make is that this is where mouse models are really great, is you can take a fact, and again, always, uh, you know, I, I want to want to be, uh, Kind of cautious about over-interpreting our own data. This is a small trial, 12, 14 patients. Um, so it needs replication, but this is, you know, again, it's a clear signal um, that we saw with only a few patients um, that suggested is a pretty strong effect. This is the kind of thing that then you can go and model that, um, that, that very, you know, well-defined finding, put it into a mouse and see what you come up with. And then what we get is, the, you know, where, what's the intersection of these two things? This is where ketamine interacts with the opioid receptor system. This is a whole novel range of brain areas that might, uh, maybe we didn't think of when we're thinking about the antidepressant mechanism of ketamine. And once again, nod to the work that's going on with our uh, you know, National Institutes of Health sponsored work with the, uh, the, the P50 with the, that Lori you're doing with uh, Liam Williams. 
the Precision Mental Health Center. This is the kind of thing we want to look for in humans. And again, like try and bridge that, that, that gap. And what we've done, you know, we've, we're taking it one step at a time. We found one, you know, one of our hottest hotspots for interaction was a brain area, actually the central amygdala, which is involved in responses to salient, environmentally salient stimuli, um, you know, involved in fear responses. So, you know, there's some, um, there, there's a story that we can see unfolding here where we're looking at uh, the intersection of ketamine with a deeply conserved across species opioid system. This is something that, you know, opioid, humans have opioid receptors, fish have opioid receptors. Um, and, you know, it is involved in, again, like stress responses, uh, pain and things like that. So this is where we're focused and we can do a lot of work in mice that we simply couldn't do. Uh, in, in humans. Um, and again, this is um, ideally then we go forward to, to test this um, in, in humans. And I think this is another point where we can, we, we can pause for a minute. And again, I, I love, you know, to, to me, what, what drives this work is the, you know, the, the stories that we hear from patients um, that, you know, that's ultimately what we're, we're moving towards is trying to understand what, you know, what, what are, what is the, the patient experience, both in, in health and in, in, uh, in disease? And I know, I think you now, you're, you're actually quite a few patients in with the ketamine study in the scanner. Yeah, yeah, we are. Um, so we have 13 patients so far with, with ketamine and then one with MDMA. So I, I spent a little bit of time with some of the folks on, on ketamine and that's one thing that's a little, I think, a little different than uh, MDMA is it's not, the context doesn't seem to be quite as relevant um, in that, you know, patients are dissociating whether or not they're in the, the scanner or whether they're sitting in an office chair, whether they're, you know, in blindfolds or for that matter, whether they're in an operating room. Um, so that's, <laughs> um, that 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 is actually a good a good segue to the last last big project and uh, Laura you you've made a really important contribution to this stuff I'll, I'll I'll share some more slides you know again like these mechanism this mechanistic work has implications for patient care um, and also the work that we do with patient care can actually give us an idea about mechanism important uh, points about mechanism too and I'll I'll touch on that in a minute. Um, and again, this, I'm just, uh, you know, harking back to this, this email I got from this patient is, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually an anesthesiologist. I go to the OR, you know, a day or more a week and we sedate patients heavily, put them into, you know, deeply, uh, deeply anesthetized states. And then they come out and, you know, it's, it's like the lights off, lights on. But what happens in the middle is a little bit of a mystery. And, um, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot in uh, these patients are, you know, risk factors, right? Putting somebody to sleep and performing major surgery on them is not a normal thing that, you know, one would do uh, until, uh, you know, the advent of antiseptics and uh, <laughs> sterile surgical technique. Um, so, you know, what we focus on, th these are intense stressors. That's really what I'm trying to say. It's pretty rare that you know the date and time of the next huge stress you're going to undergo. And we know 
you know, that stress has effects on your heart, your lungs, you know, all of your, your major organ systems. And we've done a great job in perioperative medicine looking at all these cardiopulmonary factors. Now, I think, Lori, you can probably attest to the fact that, you know, we know that stress is actually a major, probably the single most important precipitant of psychiatric disease, to which, you know, as Rob Malenka might say, duh, <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's, that's not, a, not a surprise. Uh, what is a surprise is how little we just can't do anything about it in the perioperative space. What, you know, if you, if you find out you need surgery in a week, what are we going to do to prepare you for that? And, you know, on the list of things we worry about, it really is more in column A and much less in column B for the simple reason that we just haven't, we don't have rapid acting therapies that work this fast. So now, you know, ketamine obviously is the, one of the first exceptions to this. So, you know, and again, like how big of a problem is this? And, um, you know, we've, uh, over the last uh, couple of years, we actually developed a screening program um, just specifically to look at this. And this is actually, uh, this is funded entirely by the Department of Anesthesia. This is the kind of thing that does not, uh, it's, it's not easy to get NIH interest in this. Again, like depression is, you know, widely prevalent in society, but we're looking at a, a population that I think you'll agree is acutely at risk. And I'll show you a couple, I think kind of harrowing statistics. Um, but so again, like over the, this is uh, patients gathered over the last year. Um, we targeted patients with a history of depression out of 12,500 patients that came to our clinic. We identified 2000 of those with depression. Um, we surveyed among those about 1600. We got uh, a, pretty, a pretty great response rate. And we just asked them these two questions again, we're not psychiatrists, but we work with psychiatrists. And the least we can do is this very simple primary care level intervention. It's called the patient health questionnaire two, PHQ, PHQ two. Do you, if you can answer these two questions, if you score three or above, that has a lot of predictive uh, uh, validity for you have symptomatic depression. And so what we find is that we found, you know, out of a thousand um, patients, again, there's some filtering criteria here, 17% have symptomatic depression. That's, that's quite a bit. And some of these are, you know, we say moderate or severe, um, you know, think about it like heart disease for a minute, moderate to severe heart disease means you cannot get out of bed without getting winded. Think about that as a, you know, in psychiatric terms, you know, a severe depression. That is what we are talking about. This is not, I feel pretty bad today, but I'm still at work and I'm doing an interview with uh, Laura and Jake. <laughs> that's not, you know, that's, that, 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 you know, that, that might be mild, but that's not incapacitating. What we're talking about is incapacitating um, mood disorders that, again, patients are able to kind of get by and they somehow present for surgery and we somehow had no idea about it. Um, and, you know, the question is like, well, actually we didn't get to that question yet, but the, the question that we're trying to answer through this uh, screening program is, you know, once we identify these patients, a number of these really are high-risk patients who've never been diagnosed, who don't have any psychiatric care, are not on any psychiatric drugs, some of whom are expressing suicidal ideation, um, which is, again, like these are preventable, screenable issues that, you know, you add a big surgical stress on top of this. And I think it's pretty easy to predict bad things happening when, you know, interventions, simple interventions like patient education, outreach, before we even get to ketamine and, you know, magical new therapies, um, the, those kinds of things, that's really what, what this is targeted at. And this is, 
again, this is not work that's easy to fund because right now we're you know, essentially doing it as a free clinical service. And Laura, I just wanna take another opportunity to thank you very publicly for donating your time to helping us screen some of these folks um, and understand how to, you know, how to, how to treat them. And I'm just, I, I'm gonna wrap up with just a couple of the studies that are ongoing. So now that we've identified these patients, you know, as I kind of alluded to, one thing we can do is um, try and treat them interoperatively. And that's, um, you know, if you think about it in broad terms, we're actually doing something very interesting and testing something pretty novel. If you think of ketamine as part of this broad class of rapid acting therapies, uh, like psilocybin and MDMA, one of the, the unifying themes is that in, especially with MDMA, is that you prepare patients, you set intentions, expectations, and then you have the drug session. And then after the drug session, where again, we don't know, we don't have a clear understanding of what happens. Um, after that, you integrate. In other words, you take the, the aftermath of that powerful experience and you try and apply it to your life. Now, we can, this actually fits with like the surgical model as well. I mean, there's preparation, there's the intense intervention and there's integration. And we're now incorporating ketamine into this. And what's more is we're doing it in such a way that the patient doesn't actually know that they're getting an intervention. Um, we're giving ketamine during surgical anesthesia. So, you know, getting, we're addressing one of the biggest issues, I think, in psychedelic medicine, which is if how, you know, you, if you know you got the drug and you know you're supposed to get better, there's no way to prevent you knowing because the effects of the drug are so obvious. How are you ever going to do an actual comparison to say that it was the drug and not all of the associated hype and excitement and expectation baked into it? So we're actually able to do it. And that's because ketamine is FDA approved for anesthesia. So this really is a pragmatic unfunded, except for the Society for Neuroscience in Anesthesia Critical Care, who uh, were actually gave seed funding for this, which I think was very forward thinking. But so anyway, we have an opportunity to answer a really, I think, interesting mechanistic question is, do you, how much does the role of conscious perception play in these rapid acting therapeutics? And we can ask the same types of questions about psilocybin. I think, you know, based on Laura, the, the, the report that you gave on the patient on MDMA, I think probably you need to be awake for that. That, that really, it's, again, the mechanisms are different. It's important. It's important to recognize the differences, but again, we have to suss these things out. So that's, you know, that's the trial that we're doing right now. Does ketamine even work if you're not, you know, if you're not there to, to know that you got it? And, you know, th this is the, we're, again, th this is, I'm very uh, grateful to be working with psychiatrists on this, um, like Laura, like Alan Chasberg, um, who, uh, you know, we're designing a psychiatric trial in the operating room. As far as I know, I mean, there are very few examples of anything like this where we're looking at the same types of patients you might enroll in a trial, we're looking at the same kinds of outcomes. Um, and again, this, we're 80% we're of the way there. So we'll, we'll see. Um, and I'm just gonna skip over that, that, that part. The, the last thing I wanna, again, really point out uh, about the intersection of psychiatry and, and anesthesia is something really, this, this really, this blows my mind. This is something that uh, a colleague of mine, Harrison Chow, more, if I could give him more than 100% of credit, I would. 
because this really has been his, uh, his idea that he can induce dreaming with certain anesthetic cocktails. And what's more, that when you induce dreams in some patients, especially ones who have post-traumatic uh, stress, you can get dreams that actually result in the resolution of emotional trauma. And this is, uh, again, and I want to thank the patient who's I'm about to describe for letting us talk about this. Uh, this is a woman that came to our operating room about a month ago, and she had suffered a knife attack from a family member. As you can imagine, that would be extremely distressing. Um, and in fact, she had not been able to sleep for six days, short of resting in bed, um, and uh, you know, basically terror and extreme anxiety um, about you know just reliving the attack. Now, Harrison uh, saw her in pre-op area and talked to her and thought, you know, this is a great potential. You know, this is what he's been doing. He's been kind of trying to induce dreams during surgical anesthesia. Um, so uh, the orthopedic surgeon took her back to the OR to, for definitive repair of tendons. And Harrison did his thing. And after, during the sedation, so she had a long, uh, long bout of sedation. And this is her EEG. And you know, without getting too deep in the details, one of these things is not like the other. This is basically a you know, readout of the, you know, the frequencies that her brain is generating during anesthesia. And you can see something happening right around here. And we have a pretty... Uh, pretty pretty good idea that this is uh, probably where dreaming happens because again we're this is something that we're working to develop is you know how do you monitor these brain states during anesthesia. The most remarkable thing about this was she woke up and was crying with joy. She reported this dream during anesthesia where she relived the knife attack. She relived going to the operating room and in her dream she completed surgery got home and had full functional recovery of her hands. And um, we had the, honestly, the honor and privilege of following up with her. She was so excited to tell us about this. Um, so Laura, uh, you talked to her, I talked to her, Harrison, we had a neurologist, uh, Makoto, who uh, also uh, spoke with her about the content of her dreams. And she is completely, completely resolved, no symptoms. This is N of one. Um, so again, this is, but this is a very exciting area. Um, and Laurie, I know you talked with her in some detail and what, what, did, what did you make of this case? Yeah, just as you, you mentioned, just really incredible. I mean, I, I certainly, in my experience, um, treating people with, with depression and PTSD have, have never heard of, of such a case before. Um, you know, she, she really did have some pretty severe symptoms after this um, life-threatening, you know, obviously very scary situation where, um, you know, the family member came out at, at her with a knife. And, you know, it's just so interesting because the dream was basically the same thing, um, just kind of a, a, a section of that attack, just um, swinging like, the knife over and over again um but interestingly then looking down at her hands and not have any having any wounds um so it's you know seems to be some form of reprocessing the trauma but under anesthesia um and she really has 
pretty much, yeah, very, very mild symptoms um, related to the trauma at this point. So, you know, this, again, like th th this is getting to what's so exciting about this. I mean, there, there are a number of things that are exciting. One is, um, you know, we, it's not uncommon for us to take care of patients with acute trauma. And the last thing that we're, you know, focused on typically is trying to get them to actually work through the trauma during anesthesia. You know, we usually worry about, you know, things, you know, trying to keep the, uh, you know, their heart, lungs, you know, circulation, temperature, all those kinds of things. This is an important thing. This is an opportunity. We have a patient in a very different state of consciousness than they would ordinarily be in that may be particularly malleable and maybe, you know, we can work with that. Or more, actually, uh, maybe a better way of saying it is let the patient work through it on their own. One of the most interesting analogs to psychedelic therapy, I think, is this idea that, you know, we, the way that people take MDMA and psilocybin at Burning Man, for example, is quite different from how it's taken therapeutic settings, right? So um, it's, it's not a party. Actually, with psilocybin, you have eye shades, you have headphones. And this idea of basically reducing, silencing external sensory input. We can take that analogy a little bit further and, you know, to say that, you know, what if we silenced internal sensory input? The idea of like your, you know, your ego, your sense of self actually may be what's holding you back from releasing trauma. These are very poorly defined concepts <laughs> physiologically and anatomically. Um, the fact that we know when and where that might happen and we can visualize the process with EEG, with MRI, that is remarkable. That's, um, that is, again, like what, what we're developing tools um, that allow us to get at the mechanism of really fundamental processes for healing and also just for general, you know, human expansion of human potential. Um, so, you know, in some ways, this echoes a, a long-standing argument in, among psychotherapists that practice you know, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, where um, it's, some people think it's very important that you work in that, that state that ketamine puts you into. We have some evidence from our trial that it even works when you're unconscious. And we have this dreaming thing where maybe what is actually happening is you're, you know, you're, you're really letting a process, a, a self correcting process go forward. You're taking the brakes off. You know, why are we so arrogant to believe that, you know, our egos need to be there to observe the process of us healing? Um, you know, maybe that's, that's what ego dissolution and ego death is, you know, during these intense psychedelic experiences. Um, anyway, the, these are, these are obviously just abject speculations, but again, I, I, I want to really point to point to these as doing these, um, achieving these kinds of outcomes in very structured settings with, again, control of physiology and uh, through, through powerful pharmacological manipulations, that's how I think we're going get, to get there and be able to start you know, uncovering the mechanisms of some of these, uh, some of these really deeply human processes. Um, yeah, I think that's... Uh, you know, that, that, that really takes us to the, the, the next steps of, uh, you know, how do we, how do we keep this, this momentum going? Because as of right now, the NIH is still, um, I would say, interested, but not 
so enthusiastic about about stuff like this. This is really, I would say, on the outer um, the the outer edges of um, where mental health treatment is uh, is going. And you know, certainly, I think it's the cutting edge of where neuroscience is. What do you what what what, what do you think, Laura? What do you what what's the the future hold for for this kind of this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, obviously, just incredibly exciting. Um, but as you point out, um, you know, there are things that, you know, we, we need to be cautious about, um, certainly the abuse potential. And it, you know, raises the, the issue um, of, you know, that th these are therapies are not going to be for everyone. Um, and trying to think about um, how can we figure out who is going to um, benefit that from them um, the most. And so, you know, that's, that's certainly something we are thinking a lot about in the center, um, you know, trying to um, identify baseline or imaging signatures that might be most predictive of response. Um, and so that's, you know, we can offer these therapies to, to those individuals. Um, in particular. And then, you know, I think a, another really key issue, um, and, you know, you're doing really innovative and important work on it is just how, how much psychotherapy during the session do we need, if any, and, you know, do, do we need to be conscious or not? Um, and it, it's really an important implementation and access issue, um, because, you know, in the, in the MDA protocol, it's um, the three dosing sessions are very long, they're eight hours. Um, right now, you know, the protocol is that two, two licensed therapists are needed throughout this whole session. Um, and, you know, it just, cases like this where people are getting better under anesthesia or, you know, I, I've had um, examples that of, of people I've treated with ketamine where people have said that they've just kind of, you know, worked through an issue um, themselves and kind of processed the trauma without any guidance um, kind of raises the issue of, you know, do we necessarily need the licensed therapist during the, these sessions, maybe, maybe some people do need them, but maybe some people, um, you know, are starting out with um, kind of the ability to, to go inward more and, and reprocess the, the, the trauma themselves. Um, and so maybe we just need more medical monitoring and kind of someone there if people, you know, start having a bad experience. Um, but maybe then talking about, I think, you know, that the integration is going to be important afterward, but I'm, I'm, you know, very, very curious and interested in this idea of just how much do we, how much support do we need during those dosing sessions? Um, because if we do need two licensed therapists to be there for eight hours during three sessions, that that's going to be a huge issue in terms of rolling it out to so many people with with PTSD that really need need this therapy. 
that, that touches the access issue, I think is very important. And that, again, if we just stop here with what we know or what we think we know about how MDMA, for example, works, price tag is about $15,000 a patient. Plus, you have this issue of where do you find, I mean, ther- the num- you need therapists. That's really the main shortage. And, you know, there are, there is a reason why there's two therapists. It's actually, you know, the idea that you're putting someone in a very suggestible, vulnerable state, um, you know, you, that you want to, the, the therapist is an important part of the equation, both, you know, therapeutically and also to prevent harm. Uh, and that harm can actually even come from patient therapist interactions. There are all kinds of things that, you know, this is why I did an anesthesia residency. It's because I, I mean, this is not, <laughs> I, I, this is not my, my, my domain, but, you know, that idea of like transference and countertransference, like those concepts I remember from medical school, but they're, they're powerful, uh, it, you know, things that happen in therapy and, you know, MDMA, any kind of like, you know, powerful uh, conscious altering drug just amplify that. Um, and those are actually, I think, real patient safety issues. And so again, like all of these questions about around patient access, uh, safety, really start depending on how exactly does this work? Can we identify who can do without it? Uh, but, you know, how do we, it's this, and again, it's, I think it's important to emphasize that this is never about, in my mind, about denying the role of psychotherapeutic support. In fact, I think that should be enshrined in capital letters whenever we talk about MDMA or, or psilocybin using ketamine. That you, I don't think that the model where you just give ketamine in some in a vacuum, um, or you know, I think God forbid, send people home with large doses of ketamine for unsupervised administration. I don't think that's happening, but we don't know. Um, that's not. That's I don't. That's not going to be a successful. Uh, approach as like a, a public health uh, standpoint. But again, having, you know, therapeutic support before, therapeutic support after, and then catalyzing these transformations in a safe way um, that can be, again, rolled out in any number of ways, group therapy before and after. Like there are so many models that really haven't really been uh, explored or have only just started to be explored. I think that's where we can't get from point A to point B, I think, without a lot more, a lot more work in this area. And again, like it really, it requires rigorous science. And honestly, like the next gen, there is, this is just the first iteration of psychedelic medicine. Um, You know, what we learn from these current, honestly, crude therapies, crude and powerful, I think we're going to be able to spin into something more precise, more directed, yeah, I love the idea of, you know, brain stress tests, emotional stress tests that you can, you know, combining imaging and, uh, you know, and, and behavior and really to understand a little bit more about a person in a pretty short time. So that's anyway, that, that, that's where I, I hope this goes over the next few years um, as our, you know, our, our group grows and our collaborations deepen. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see where we uh, where, where where we end up, but that's a pretty exciting uh, exciting road right now. What what do you think we need to um, you know what kind of resources do we need to to implement these studies that are going to be so important? So first, I'll tell you what I don't think we need, which is we have <laughs> enormous intellectual capital here. I I mean the 
I cannot, I, I came, I didn't, I thought I was going to do residency in New York at Columbia or something. And I came to Stanford and I realized the number of just the, the, the kinds of conversations I had just in one day across, you know, human neuroscience, animal neuroscience, like the potential for really transformative uh, work in medicine. That is what drew me here and why I've, I've stayed. So we have a very, I mean, a, a fantastic extended network of collaborators with deep experience in these areas. And we've already, you know, we've already spent years working on drugs like MDMA and ketamine. So it's to go to the next step. I think we touched on this early on. You know, we have a lot of our strength is in understanding mechanism and translating across this divide, um, uh, you know, species. And what, you know, in order to really interface with the broader community, um, you know, that's really interested in psychedelic therapy, I think we really need to hone our ability to, to on the therapeutic side, developing, um, you know, a therapeutic program where, again, we have trained therapists where we really, if we want to understand the role of therapy, we need to be able to deliver high quality precision therapy. Um, and again, like it's, it's all part of this, um, a new set of tools that we have for really precision brain state engineering, I guess is one way. That's a very Stanford way to talk about it. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a combination of psychotherapy, targeted, uh, you know, pharmacological manipulations of consciousness, hypnosis, brain stimulation. These things all are going to work together to achieve precise outcomes. But it really, what we need is, I think, the therapeutic uh, side of it. And again, you know, having clinicians and training programs that are really devoted to that aspect of it, which is, again, also, there's a lot of room to grow uh, in how these therapies are delivered just on the practical side. Uh, you know, what types of therapy you do, et cetera. I don't know. What, what do you think, Laura? What do you think we need? Yeah. So, um, so you have the, the, the fireplace. So you just need to put it, put it some stockings up for your, your Christmas wish list for Stanford uh, right. psychedelic research. Exactly. Well, um, I mean, I think, you know, if, you know, right now we're doing these more mechanistic studies and, and humans, uh, with, um, people without psychiatric illness. So, um, healthy controls. Um, but if we're, you know, going to start, if the, you know, the center of certainly has plans to, um, start doing studies in, um, people with, you know, depression and PTSD with ketamine and MDMA, um, I think it just will be really important to have, um, you know, the ad adequate space um, and, um, you know, and to, as, as we were kind of saying before, to, to make um, our patients feel, feel comfortable um, during these, these sessions. I think that's really the, uh, the, the dream is being able to combine all of these you know, technological advances and very sophisticated approaches with really putting that in a much more human context. Um, that is an enormous challenge for research. If you just think about, you know, the <laughs> try, you know, the, even, even down to animal, animal work is, you know, we know how much, you know, environment plays a role in these things. And it's just this, that's the kind of thing that takes resources and time to develop. Um, so I, I think that, I think we are, we are on our way, but there's still, there's a lot of, 
uh, room to grow. Yes, um, agreed. Jacob, after after listening to all you know all the, this uh, back and forth, what what do you uh, what do you make of it? I think that um, you know all of this is incredibly exciting to kind of be be part of, especially you know from the perspective of of actually watching the participants come in and uh, getting to see reactions to the different doses when we're when we're doing ketamine and MDMA um, clinical trials. So I think that the future is bright when it comes to precision mental health and precision uh, psychiatry as a whole. And I think that as we kind of progress in better understanding the mechanisms like we're, like we're doing in these um, clinical trials that, that we're all involved in, um, I think it's gonna become abundantly more and more clear as, as you and Laura were talking about which circuits we're really talking about in the brain and ultimately what, who, are the, who are the individuals that are in need of, of these types of interventions. Um, and I, I think that having such a talented cohort at Stanford, which has enabled uh, research that spans from you know animal models all the way to um, human-based mechanisms and application is just uh, really exciting to be a part of and uh, also contributing to what is what will in hopefully in the next 10 years become uh, really the future of psychiatry. Cool. Well, thank you again for uh, in inviting me inviting me on to, to chat. Um, we're all going to see each other outside of this very, very soon as we continue with our the, the human experiments um, with ketamine and with MBMA and we'll continue to have a lot, a lot more to talk about and uh, look forward to working, working with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah.